Welcome to Melly, a conversation on Samaritan history by Jonathan Van Arneman, Kyla Brown, Ralph Cantal, and Steffi Gomes. Come hear the Melly and share the Melly. This episode, the Melly team talks with Marcel Gums, political figure of St. Martin. He tells us about his childhood between Curacao, French Quarter, and Phillipsburg, and much more. My parents, both my parents uh, were from French Quarter, and um, both of them went to Curacao um, to seek uh, economic opportunities working in the refinery. And um, my father worked in the um, um, warehouse department of the refinery. You have to take into consideration that in those days, uh, the refinery, Shell Refinery in Curacao employed um, over 15,000 people. Uh, my mother worked as a um, um, housekeeper, um, a domestic aide, a helper, maid uh, for a Dutch family. And I was born there, my, my sister born first in 1950, and I was born in 1953. And we came to St. Martin the first time on vacation in 1957, uh, 1958. And um, my father already had um, built um, his first house in French Quarter. It was a tradition in those days. You go away to Aruba and Curacao uh, to work. And um, you always had in the back of your head that you're going back home. So uh, he built his house in uh, French Quarter. Um, <clears throat> His, uh, his um, nephew, um, Steffi, um, Uncle Guillaume, <laughs> was a contractor that, um, that built that house. And we came, I came to Samaritan the first time as, as a boy, four or five years old, and um, can still remember riding a donkey by Aunt Olette. Aunt Olette is our, my aunt that lived to be 105 years old. And um, just... Um, you know, enjoying the the, the the village, in fact, as as it was. I mean, it was the days of um, everybody having a, a cow or a goat or a sheep or something to take care of some animal. And also it's, uh, it was not, um, things were things were rough. I mean, um, there was no electricity. Just for information, French Quarter got electricity only in 1971 and 1972. Um, I left in 1969 to go back to Curacao to study my studies at the Technical um, Junior College, MTS. And um, living up, um, we went back to Curacao on vacation, and then my father got a medical discharge in 1960. And we came back to St. Martin with everything, repatriate completely, um, and moved to French Quarter. Uh, I have some very clear memories of, of, of that period, of that time. We came up on a boat named the Antelia that used to come up once a month from Curacao and bring up uh, passengers on its way up with their little cargo or whatever. And on its way down, it used to pass through stations and kits and pick up sweet potato and um, provisions and whatever, and take down mostly to be sold in the Windward Islands communities that was on Curacao. Um, How long was the journey? Uh, the journey was um, four, four days, four to five days, depending on the, on the sea. Yeah. But it's, it's, it was an amazing experience. I mean, there's nothing like uh, being on the Antilia as a little boy, um, six years old. And then you see the flying fishes coming very close to the boat and, you know, just um, seeing nature. Um, <clears throat> coming up, um, that was a nice trip. Um, 
I'll never forget it. I got sick like a dog because they serve mashed potato and corned beef. And I spent 15 years not eating corned beef <laughs> because I got, I got upset. I got sick. But anyway, French Quarter um, back in those days, when we came to French Quarter back in the 60s, the Hurricane Donna had recently passed and destroyed this country. I'll never forget some images that still stuck with me. You know that image in uh, that road here, Long Wall Road, where um, F.W. France Sons used to be, and they got the sports auditorium? Well, they had some metal um, light poles or um, telephone poles or whatever on the road. And it was amazing how they were there destroyed by the hurricane, but all of them would bend in a different direction, you know? So th those are things that, um, that stick in your mind as a, as a boy. French Quarter. Um, when we got to French Quarter, um, there was no electricity and uh, we were lucky to have, um, my father had built a house, so we had a roof over our head. And um, my father also having worked in, in the refinery, um, really came home with a lot of stuff. And you would, my, I can remember my mother asking him, why, why are you taking this and why that? And he had a vision. For instance, gaslight. Gaslight was not a kerosene light, but gaslight was a, was a type of light that you pump uh, uh, a blue uh, liquid light. They, they call it household gas. Um, you, you put that in it and then you, you light it up and then in the night it will give a very bright light. So basically in those days in French Quarter, if you had a, 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 a gas light, um, you would... Um, you were, you were considered a notch higher because all other houses only had kerosene lanterns and you had to do, um, you know, whatever you're doing in the night by kerosene light. Um, those are the lanterns, they call them now the hurricane lanterns. Those are the hard ones. They, those you used to walk with if you were going on the streets or, um, or you keep them in the house, the most with the decorative. Um, <clears throat> What I remember very clearly being in the house and going to family houses is, for instance, um, something that you don't see now. They call it flycatcher. It was a sort of crepe paper that they had people design. They would cut it in different style, and with a thumbtack, you'll put it to the ceiling, and it will hang. And the flies, them when there's fly season, would stick on the on the on the on the the flyer, the, the, the ants flyer, and, you know, do their poop there and mess. So they wouldn't mess up the, the ceiling and they wouldn't be flying around. They'd have a place to go. Um, yeah. Having been to, I went to school in Curacao up until second grade, um, that system, that school system. So my parents thought it was best for me to continue in the Dutch school system. So I lived in French Quarter. And um, I went to school on the Dutch side. I went to the sister school in front of St. Rose Hospital, St. Joseph School. Um, not only me, but a whole bunch of kids from French Quarter. Um, in those days, you had the parents, there was more kids going to school on the Dutch side from the French side than going from the Dutch side, from the French side to the Dutch side than from the Dutch side to the French side. You had people coming all the way from uh, Grand Cars and uh, in cars and so yeah people like mr kagan you had a blue station wagon and he would bring in students children steve uh, steve tacklin and some others um the gentleman that just died there um, lawrence uh, rex allen Rollins. he they went to he went to school on the dead side for a period of time um did you ever walk to school sorry if i of course i walked to school from fridge water 
Okay. Oh, that's that's a whole. I walked to school from uh, French Quarter. Yes, because there were there, we had a bus. Jean Brooks used to take us to school um, from um, from French Quarter to to Phillipsburg, but that was that was an experience you'll never forget. And just to give you an idea, who all was on that school bus? We 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 did well. Well, we did exemplary in being from French Quarter. The 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 very famous notary now, um, a good friend of mine, Mike Alexander. Um, you probably heard the name a lot. He's one of the most successful notaries in Curacao. Um, his grandmother was from French Quarter, right in the corner in Pumu there before you turn the corner to come to the border. And um, he, he went to school on Jean Brooks bus also. A whole, the bus was always full of kids. Um, and sometimes if you don't, if you're going to school and there was only one gas station on the island on the Dutch side, it was in front of the courthouse. Um, there where Palahindu used to be, where the coconut man used to be. You all remember the coconut man on the square? Well, right there, there was a gas station that was owned by Cyrus Wati, uh, Claude Wati's father. And um, he had a grocery store inside and Claret Connor, father, um, Clarence Connor, was, used to work there. He was a tailor and I can still see him with a measuring tape around his neck and he'll come out and pump gas in the buses or whatever. There weren't many. Uh, so, so Jean Brooks would always go and get gas, but and bring it French Quarter. But his sons were, 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 were mechanics, so uh, whenever the bus come French Quarter in the afternoon, they'll suck the gasoline out. So in the morning, there was no gas to take us to school. So we've had to walk to school a few times from French Quarter to um, to Phillipsburg, and the bus the bus would go from French Quarter, uh, Dutch Quarter. Because the bus um, had a Dutch number plate on it, imagine, in those days, in the 60s. But the, the, the license plate uh, and, and license plates was uh, the owner of um, uh, Edgar Lynch's parents um, were the owner of the license. They, they, the bus was registered in their name. But it was Jean Brooks, the driver, <laughs> if you understand what I mean. That strange combination. And um, we would go up through Bishop Hill Road, and sometimes the bus would stop, and you got to run down and get a liter of the same blue cooking um, um, gas that you put in the lamp. Uh, those are the thing also, I don't know if you all remember them. Um, you put them in ironing heaters also to iron clothes, to do ironing, to iron your clothes. Yeah, you do, do, they had them, we get, you put your fillet up in a little bottle in the back and you pump it and you light it and you iron your clothes with that. Yeah, that was um, going from school to school from uh, French Quarter to to Phillipsburg, and then when school was. But how long? How long did it last? Uh, by car and uh, if you walked it. Oh, it depends on the speed of walking. But of course, walking we always took longer because you got to stop by this palm tree tree. You got to stop by the kinip tree. Uh, you got to go in somebody yeah, tip them and go until they shout you. And then you got to hope that they don't see who you are, because if they see who you were and they tell your mother two days later, you get an Araya Cortez for going into somebody's mango tree. We've had a few of those. Um, <laughs> the, in those days growing up, you, uh, it, was, it was really the meaning, the significance of a village being brought up by a village was there. I'll tell you all your personal story, then we'll talk a little more about life in general. I um, when we were neighbors to Guillaume Arnel's uh, family, Guillaume Arnel's mother, Miss Vera, okay? Um, when my mother was working or anywhere, she was a supervisor. I had to listen to her. I couldn't go in the road 
And if she saw me in the road, all she had to do was come down and saw us and she would look at us and we know what we had to do, go back up. Because you don't want to be um, punished by Vera because when you get punished by Vera and she tells your mother, you get a double punishment. That's how it worked. I, I grew up to be uh, a member of parliament and Miss Vera, I call her up to know Miss Vera, was always very cognizant and very followed politics and everything. And I've said a few things in parliament and she would um, send a message that when I come back here, she wants to see me. So when I go to see Miss Vera, my knees was always trembling. I wonder what she's gonna curse me with, you know, because that was the type of respect or, you know, I don't know if you call it respect or fear. I don't know what to call it, but I think it was more respect than, it's not a fear, respect for Miss Vera. So um, up to two days ago, I was telling her son, you know, every time I tell that story, you know, you feel it because the respect, you know, and you don't dare, I don't, I can't dare pass Miss Vera anywhere without going and getting a hug, like a kiss, because, you know, I'm scared that she would tell my mother who passed away 15 years ago. But growing up, it was, it was different. It was nice. Everybody knew each other. Of course, we had differences as young boys, you know, you'll fight, you know, you'll fist fight and so. But there was, there was fun things to do. Uh, there was, uh, I, I can still, Remember, every day, sometimes I pass by a well. A well is right behind the gas station, Best Buy. It's called Gromba Well, okay? Um, and even if you didn't have any cows, you will go with your neighbor's friend who has cows in the hills, bring them down, and everyone will take turn and draw the water out of the well with a bucket, with a rope, and, um, you know, throw in the trough to, for everybody's um, cow to, to get water to drink. Um, jollifications was something that I've experienced. You see how people come together you know, and help each other build houses, uh, pour concrete, and um, you know, for no money, just a good meal and you know, a good bottle of rum, and that's it. Um, there was, I've experienced serenading in my youth in French Quarter. Serenading was around Christmas time, and you better have the, the rum or the lime punch or whatever, for when they come and wake you up. And serenading would start um, in mid-November so, you know, just for Christmas, everybody just go from house to house. And they always had a little boy who would be the one to walk with the empty bags of cement. And the reason for that was, is that when they play the drum and the drum gets weak, you know, you had to start a little fire and then put the drum over the fire so that the, 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 the leather can pull, get tighter, and then the drum song better. Things that I remember from my youth. <laughs> um, <clears throat> growing up, um, of course, in the village, there were no, the, before, the, before Dr. Gibbs came, there was, um, there was um, no official doctor, but, um, and distance to Marigot was very long. So if you get sick, uh, you feel anything, you have to depend on the older heads, the elders to come with some idea for bush and um, what to, you know, how to use it and so. Uh, from a very young age, um, we were taught that if you want to sleep well, you better take, you better go on the tree before the sun sets and take two or three leaves of sour sap leaves and, you know, put it in a pot. Don't, don't go on the tree when the sun, when it's dark, because that's not good. <laughs> they say, well, people say you don't disturb the leaf, you don't wake up the leaf to, um, to you wouldn't get good tea. But, um, yeah, those are things that um, we went along. And um, one of the things I remember, there was a time I got it myself. Uh, there was a, like a fever going around in, in, in the village. And um, my aunt Olette 
had inherited a, a box of shoebox with, with the glass cups. And the, the, the ancient, um, I think Chinese or Japanese therapy of cupping, you know, uh, when you get uh, fever, um, they would um, bring, come, she'll call her and she'll come down with these cups and then they'll throw some alcohol in it and catch the fire and then put it on your back or on your hand or whatever, wherever it's hurting and do cupping. And I, 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 I saw um, well, maybe two years ago, Phelps, the guy that, uh, that swims uh, in the Olympics, he had something on his back and they put cupping on his back. And I said, my God, look at that. <laughs> I, I had that done to me when I was a kid, 12 years old. <laughs> So um, I am, um, yeah, coming back, um, how you feel, I never felt anything, and up to today, I'm going to tell you, I've never felt anything about being from the French side or from the Dutch side. And for me, it's normal um, all my life, um, um, being um, multi, um, I call it multinational. And for me, I never have any discussion because I don't understand um, when they talk about French side. And that is not now. It has become popular now. <laughs> when I say popular, <laughs> there's a lot of people now in, in you know, those uh, popular places. And so nowadays they're talking about, oh, oneness and this. But you know, oneness is, is talking about it when it's popular. But what have you done from yourself, from your own perspective? to make a contribution to make it work, you know, as one. And um, there's a lot of them, um, yeah, everybody that's the human being that wants to uh, claim victory and everything. No, you know, um, there's a saying, success and victory has many fathers, but failure and defeat is an orphan. Nobody wants to accept it. And um, that's what, in my opinion, that's what I see happening a lot on the island. And in particular with this Dutch French thing, because, for you to understand um, the Dutch-French relation and to get a feeling, uh, 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 to understand how it works, you got to have an affinity. You got it's something got to pull you to it. If I tell you that there's people, um, elected officials, uh, even normal officials on the on the Dutch side, who does not go to Marigot or does not go to the French side for months. There, there is people in Phillipsburg tells you plain, I'm not coming French Quarter. I'm scared of French Quarter. You all got so much of gangsters. You all got this, you all got that, you know? And I said, but have you seen a gangster in French Quarter, who it is, you know? And, and that perception uh, lives, I find too strong among certain people. So, the both sides, uh, the island in my book is one, okay? And I, I live it. I've lived it from the time I was six years old until the day of today. There is different jurisdictions, of course. There is, uh, it's, it's different in laws. And um, the whole issue is that um, that has to be respected. Um, jump low, jump high, it's still administratively um, two different um, piece of pie. And, you know, um, to go a little deeper, maybe I'm jumping ahead, maybe I should talk more about the past, but I think I gotta get this off my chest. This perception that one day we're going to um, unify the island and make it a fully one independent island. I wish whoever thinking that and I wish them well, but I don't see that happening in the next two, three generations. It's just not, 
in my, I don't, being realistic, I don't see it happening. Coming back to my past, um, yes, we went to school on the Dutch side from the French side. And um, like I said, many of us went, did that, did that journey. And um, <clears throat> they, um, the benefit of it was that um, you, you get a continuous flavor of, um, of, 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 of both sides. Um, but um, <clears throat> coming back to, um, to, to uh, interject you, but maybe it would be, it's also interesting to know, because I think today when we think about the two sides being French and Dutch, da da da, uniting independence, there is today a lot of talk about the Netherlands as a thing, right? So criticizing the Netherlands, criticizing the Dutchman, and the same for France and the Frenchman. So maybe uh, it's also interesting to know, like, back uh, a few decades ago, like, was there, were there these ideas? Because you, I think you lived a more oneness within St. Martin, but maybe it also had a difference with how people thought about um, the colonizer or... Well, well, the, 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 I don't, I, the, the colonizer was, was there, but wasn't there because, um, like I said, for a period of time, yes, there, there was no attention for St. Martin, in my opinion, from the French Republic because of the structure and, um, the, the, the St. Martin, look, in the sixties, the, 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 every, every young man, every single man, um, from French Quarter and from other areas, had to look for work off island. Um, my father, born in 1922, okay, at the age of 17, he and five of his friends um, left French Quarter like um, 10 o'clock at night on, on some donkeys and went to Marigat to get on a sailing boat for them to sail to try to get into St. Thomas illegally, just like we have the, the Haitians and, and, the, and the Chinese and everybody trying to get down. They went down there in those days. And you're talking 1939, 1940. He stayed, he and two friends, two, there was six of them. Um, four stayed and he and another friend couldn't take it. And they decided to come back because they had to be hiding from, from immigration in those days. In those days, the US government was building a submarine base in St. Thomas. So a lot of stuff was coming in, like fridge and stoves. And he has told us stories that every Saturday he'll get a new bed. And the new bed was a carton boxes that the fridges came into. In those days, the, the kerosene fridges, because there was not much electricity. And that was it. And he, 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 and he couldn't swim. So he almost drowned getting off the boat, getting to shore from the boat. And he couldn't take it. And after seven months, he and his friend found their way back to St. Martin. So there's all, and later on, the, the opportunity came for people to leave from St. Martin, Dutch and French side, to go to Aruba and Curacao to work, to make a contribution uh, in, 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 in the refinery. Uh, and yes, it worked both ways. It worked in the, the, the working and getting a job and to be able to send money. That's why we had a remittance economy up until the, 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 the late 60s with money coming in from family members in Aruba and Curacao. Um, <clears throat> I have some cousins um, and family here in French Quarter. 
they 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 would have killed for my mother because they remember they remember when they were going without shirts and and and, and pants they would be excited and waiting for the end of the month because they expect that my mother and her sisters who were in curse I would send uh, two yards of cloth to be able to make something for them to wear. So that is a level of poverty that we had in those days. And going away to look for a job meant something. We had a lot of people um, left St. Martin and went to New York uh, from French Quarter. There's a whole family that generational-wise worked for Sapelin Paint Company in Staten Island, my family. And all their names are there at Ellis Islands. I've seen it. I've gone and visited and see it. So we've been a migrating people all over. If you take the, the situation, and I'm going to just jump on that a while, the situation of the whole Caribbean migration, I said about the contribution they made. Uh, yes, they went to Aruba and Curacao work in the refinery, but I see it also as their contribution to helping the Allies fight the war, because if it was not for the refinery on Aruba and Curacao, the Allies, the United States, and whoever went up to help fight against Hitler would not have won the war, because there would not have been enough fuel to fuel the war to, to, to reach success. But just imagine yourself, the whole of the Caribbean, the only nation that did not have people left their country, their island, to go to Curacao or Aruba to work in the refineries were Guadeloupe and Martinique, okay? Because they were already French and they were protected already under some, some sorts of laws and so that the French government had. But you take from St. Kitts, uh, Antigua, Grenada, St. Vincent, go down the line. Every one of those islands sent people to Aruba and Curacao to seek work. Maurice Bishop, the big revolutionary of Grenada, was born in Aruba. His father and mother went to Aruba from St. Vince, from Grenada to work in the refinery. John Compton, the famous prime minister of, of um, St. Lucia, twice prime minister, guy who goes and become prime minister second time at the age of 81, got all his formation in the union, the, the trade unions on Aruba in the refinery. So there was always a migration going on. My mother was born in Santo Domingo because my grandfather was a very good accountant and went to work for the Santo Domingo Sugar Company. And that is their recorded history. So, you know, there's always been a migration back and forth. So, uh, <clears throat> so the, uh, coming back, coming back to, um, to, to French Quarter, there's always been a, a, a movement, you know, throughout the region. Um, um, if you understand what I mean. I mean, I feel like I have a lot of questions, to be honest. Um, <laughs> um, well, one of my questions is more ideological, and then one of them is more just in terms of lived experiences. Um, one of the things we've talked about on the show is the changing of the landscape of St. Martin in terms of the people who, who reside here. Um, yeah. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the tourism boom and the changes in, in population oh. and structure that happened. Very good. Um, and then kind of like related to that, I just want to know, like, in your opinion, like, who is a St. Martiner or who can be considered a St. Martiner? <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's a tough question. But, you know, we, 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 I think we would need to uh, have a, 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 a workshop somewhere and, um, and um, you know, spend a couple of weeks of time just on that discussion and, and, and analyze that. 
but um, the changes, um, the changes, the landscape, okay? But let me, I don't think I'd finish answering Carla's question. Carla, there was not, no, 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 um, the, the, the France and the Netherlands were not, um, how you say, their presence actively was, was not there in the 60s. Uh, I would even say in, in maybe not in the 70s. Let me take the, the, the French side first. I think that in the, in the 80s, when you had the, 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 the movements and the independence and the, the revolutionary, the, the rights and things going on in Guadeloupe, I think the French government at that time came up with this great, great idea uh, and they gave more autonomy sort of um, to the, the, the Martinique and, and especially Guadeloupe and where they introduced another level of government. You had a general council and now you got a regional council. Okay, they did that. And what they did, um, they introduced this defeat, this defiscalization um, program that they introduced for all their overseas territories to so-called get economic activity and development by providing tax incentives to French investors in, the, in France. I think uh, my, some of my friends on the French side <laughs> tell me uh, they don't agree with me, but that's right. They, they, ha they have a right to disagree with me. But that defiscalization really, really, really changed the landscape of uh, not only the French side, but the entire island. That was one of the reasons, that was one of the things that changed it. I'm gonna come back to Carla's question about um, the, in the, the influence and the presence of um, the colonial powers or the mother countries, whatever you wanna call it. But what changed is the scope on St. Martin? I'm gonna go explain it like this. Um, in the ending of the 50s, okay, there was the, um, the group, from the Caribbean that went to work in the refineries, on particular Ruben Curacao. Before that, everybody went to Cuba or to Santo Domingo to cut cane or to work in the sugar factories. I had a great, great uncle. I traced him, I did some research two years. He went to Cuba uh, to cut cane. He was a good cane cutter. His, his, his return on investment was good. And he died there, no kids or nothing, but he died there. He was, he was, his last name was Jacobs. Uh, on my on my grandmother's side, and then we had those that went to Santo Domingo, a whole bunch of them. That is why you got all these uh, names from San Pedro Macorís. Uh, the guy Carty that played baseball, the one Duncan in the major leagues, and all all of them is families from here, Sinkets and Needles that went down there. Okay, um, and then what you have. In the late 50s, after the Cuban Revolution with Castro and so, the, 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 the Americans, uh, in particular the Jews' investments, what they had in, in, in hotels and so, Castro ran them out, okay? Um, because it was the pleasure of the Caribbean, sunshine, sea, party, uh, entertainment, night entertainment, day entertainment, you name it. They went, they rushed to Cuba for that. Okay, and then at a certain moment, the other islands in the Caribbean that were <clears throat> just barren and nothing going on, they saw an opportunity and the investors from the states saw an opportunity to start investing. That is why Aruba, Aruba only started developing tourism, okay, 
strongly after their separate status in 1986. Before that, Aruba's full economy was from the oil refinery. Everything was centered around St. Nicholas. Everything was centered around St. Nicholas. So the refinery had 14,000, 15,000 people working for it. So the indigenous Arubians who are the, 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 from Santa Cruz and from Dakota and about, they were pra practically in the minority because all the Windward Islanders that went down there from Sabre Station, St. Martin, that were Dutch, could have also participated in the political arena. That is why you had the PPA party, Partido Patriotico Arubiano, lead, uh, founded by Juan Cheroskin, who was an Arubian. But what he did, because of the different groupings from the Windward Islands and from Suriname and about, he put together a party a multicultural, multi-ethnic, whatever you call it, party. That's where people like Mr. Antisane from Station, Mr. Machu, um, Leo Chance, and you name it, continue. They became powerhouses in the political arena in Aruba, not being from Aruban descent. Okay, that's just. Come back to St. Martin. So St. Martin tourism started off, um, let us say in, in the late 50s, the first hotel, major hotel that was built here was built by a Dutch company. That's Little Bay, Little Bay Beach Hotel, later on became DB. And then what happened? In the late 60s, it started, St. Martin started getting being discovered by the so-called, by the investors, American investors. And then the, in the early 70s, what happened? Mullet Bay came. Mullet Bay, my first job I had when graduating from Mulo in 1969. Okay, Mulo, I don't know where it's where, a little higher than Marvel, I guess they call that. Um, because in Mulo, you, you, in Mulo, you couldn't choose no subjects. You had to study what they gave you, what they tell you. Okay, bust your brains and study. It was nothing, I want one year French, I want one year this, I want that. So it wasn't no uh, cherry picking stuff going on. It was, this is the program, this you follow, you learn, okay? But my first job in 1969, I worked a month, um, to tell you, with, the, with Teo Heiliger's father, we worked for a month on a backhoe down in Malibu area. The backhoe is doing soil testing, testing the soil. So they'll hold on to a stick there and they'll test the soil, see how deep it goes. And that was the beginning of Mullet Bay, okay? Malabé, uh, when Malabé opened in the early 70s, what happened? All of a sudden, the Dutch side didn't have enough people to work. Malabé came and Malabé set up a whole training institute at that time, okay? And Lou Peters, uh, Kalila Peters' father, they picked him from in New York and brought him down to be vice president of human resources. But Lou Peters, family, got family from French Quarter. His roots is buried in French Quarter. So subsequently what happened, Mullet Bay had buses. You see like them yellow school buses going around? Mullet Bay had buses. Alred Peters, a union leader, he, the union, and together with Mullet Bay, they had a busing company. And they had like, you see where Ace is in Cold Bay? All that land there, Ace in Cold Bay. That land was the parking space for anywhere between 15 to 20 of them school buses that used to run around the island and carry, pick up and carry people to work in Mullet Bay. So eventually what happened is that the Dutch side didn't produce enough people to work. 
So then the executive council, pay good attention to what I'm saying, the executive council of the Dutch side, the local government, took an executive council decision and said that people born on the French side, remember this, good, write it down, people born on the French side can, will be waived, the, the, the work permit, according to the law, will be waived for them to come and work on the Dutch side. And that is why you got the moment when Malabé was really picking up, you got a lot of people came from the French side to work at Mullet Bay because the, 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 the necessity to have a work permit was waived because they were born on French St. Martin. Remember that, because I'm going to tell you how, where that started to change. Okay, so that is why you have um, French Quarter. The other day I was sitting by a local bar and there was nine guys that come up who worked at Mullet Bay. Okay, who worked at Mullet Bay? One of them not living far from me. He was uh, he was a captain in the gourmet restaurant. And the gourmet restaurant in the days of Mullet Bay, for you to get in there to go dinner, first of all, you had to put on a jacket and a necktie. Those were the days when there was class. Okay, then class in the sense that you had Mullet Bay that started, and then the Jews came down and built the Concord. The Concord was built by a gentleman, Conrad Parker, from the Concord Hotel in Kiamisha Lake, upstate New York. In those days, the Concord Hotel up in Kiamisha Lake, upstate New York, was the biggest hotel. They had over a thousand rooms on the east coast of, of the United States, and they had a branch down here. And those days, the hotels were different. There was, you know, you go to the hotel, even as a local, you put on your jacket, you hook your girl, or your lady, and you go and you see a show. And people, uh, uh, you know, my generation, we should be writing more and writing these things down for you all. Um, Natalie Cole, the daughter of Nat King Cole, the daughter of Nat King Cole, started her singing career here on St. Martin before she became famous. Yes. <laughs> right in, in, you see where the Maho is, the old Maho, out under it, that was the, the Concord. And Nati Cole started singing there. But anyway, not to drift from that. So we get a lot of people from the French side came over and work in Mullet Bay. Mullet Bay was like, it was come to Mullet Bay because it's on St. Martin or come to St. Martin because it has Mullet Bay. And you have people like Clement Van Heinegen, the, the, the Mustington boys, the cook, all of them learn to cook and work in Mullet Bay. Okay, so what happens now? When the tourists come, they stay at Mullet Bay, at Maho, DV, Great Bay, and about. And they would go to the beach, and then in the afternoon, around 5, 6 o'clock, they would get dressed, put on their jacket, and they would go up Grand Cars for dinner. Okay? This is because Grand Cars was like dinner city. I mean, um, no insult to, no punk to anybody, but the French, the, the Americans were in the States, um, they they were not open to French cuisine, you know. The French can the French can take butter and garlic and make it you know make you hungry down the road two miles down the road. So 
the, the, the procedure was you get you go to the beach, you old Mullet Bay, and you talk da, 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 and have the pina coladas. You go to your room three o'clock, you rest, you take a shower, the tourists I'm talking about, and then they go up Grand Cars. And then they have this foie gras and, da, da, and then they come back and then everybody goes to the casino. And then they talk, they sit down at the table and say, well, we had dinner at like a long, I had dinner there, and the foie gras was good. Oh, well, it was so delicious. Everything was so delicious. Good. And that was it. The French side did not have any hotel rooms, very limited. And then the defeats came in. So when the defeats came in, what happens? The defeats came in, maquettes, projects were sold in Paris uh, via a maquette. All you have to tell the buyer is like, look, you pay, you buy so much, you get so much discount on your taxes from the French government, and you're good to go. People invested money that they never came to see mine. They never see what they bought. They never wanted to see what they want, what they bought. They didn't need to see it. So we get a lot of hotels on the French side built, properties built. But these properties were built because the tax incentive, they were built very good. A management company took over, but it didn't need much money to raise, to, to, to earn, to manage it because the initial investment was made already by the company. So what happens? Mullet Bay, who in the off season would sell us a, a room for let's say $60, okay? That same room, the hotel on the French side built with defeat money could have sell it to the wholesaler from the United States for $35. A night. So you had a shift of traffic from the Dutch side to the French side in all of these defeats built hotel properties. Look at them, Flamboyant, the one up uh, Orient Bay, um, you name it. And all of them, what has become of them? All of them has become now not hotel rooms, but residence for, for people. So that's one of the influences where a decision taken on one side can affect the other side. Okay, we're going to stick to the workers. So what happened now? Everybody from the French side came to work on the, on the Dutch side. Not everybody, a, a lot. And it worked well, for instance, at the airport. Because if you got Air France, you got other things, you need somebody speaking French to speak to the clients. And you had a lot of uh, people from the French side that just work with all the airlines. Rainier had a lot of them, pilots, uh, people at the front and everything. So that went on. And then in the, in the eight, in, in 2000, somewhere there, I can't remember the exact year, um, the Democratic Party was in, in power. Louis Laveys was the commissioner of, um, of, um, of labor. And what did the government on the Dutch side do? They changed the policy on waiving of work permits and basically said that everybody, as long as you're not born on Dutch Martin, you will, a Dutch citizen, if you're not a Dutch citizen, you will need a work permit. And that's when the mess hit the fan. However, before that, I will, must exp explain you this. In the 80s, what you had a change on the French side. In the 80s, when the French side started getting more, came more under the radar from Guadeloupe and from the French and so, when also they started more concentrating on healthcare in Guadeloupe. 
every, not every, but majority, a lot of pregnant mothers who were born on St. Martin Friendside, who normally would give birth to their children on the Friendside, the minute there was a symbol or any complication, immediately they were flown out to Guadeloupe, and the child is born in Guadeloupe. That child now has grown and has become big, doesn't know anything about Guadeloupe, went to school on the French side, probably finished school, probably went to France, probably come back, and is trying to get a job on the Dutch side, hoping that the request, the need for a work permit would be waived like it was for her parents. But she was born in Guadeloupe, so the policy still can't work now. Because the policy that was signed when Mother Bill was open said, you have to be born on the French side. Subsequently, what happened is that the immigrants, the Haitian, the Dominicans who came and who, when they got pregnant, their children was born in Marigot, okay? They, yes, can apply. And then the discussion come up. Yeah, but Marcel, I a heart from Grand Cars. My daughter from here. She can't get a job on the front, on the Dutch side without a work permit. But the Haitian woman who come here with nothing, who child born in Marigot, yes, can get a job because the policy said you got to be born. But your daughter was born in Guadeloupe. That brought a lot of friction and a lot of confusion up until maybe five, six years ago when I was still buzzing around as a consultant and trying to, you know, help and work and so on. So those are some of the intricacies that, that affects and that is there. Because you say, but I'm from, I'm from Grand Cars. I hide from Grand Cars, yes. But the policy said, and the government on the Dutch side in the meantime changed the policy, saying that if you're born, if you don't have a Dutch passport, you will need a, 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 a work permit, okay? So... I think um, the scenario, how it changed. So we go back. We had this tourism came, Mullet Bay came, Maho came. There was open traffic, okay? Again, what I'm going to say about French Quarter, my friends in Grand Cars would not like me. But happened so that a good number of people from French Quarter, <laughs> probably more than from Grand Cars, worked in Mullet Bay. Because, you know, it's simple that French Quarter got, uh, French Quarter people got a pretty bigger network uh, on both sides of the island, so to speak. First thing you got the Vice President of Human Resources, got his roots buried in French Quarter. Of course, he's there more often, he will see more people from there. But <clears throat> Malabé was a blessing in disguise for many things. Uh, blessing these guys, a lot of people learn simple things, hotel business in um, Mullet Bay. Um, sorry if you're hearing some noise. I got a workman outside working with some tools there. And some, some good, good things came out of Mullet Bay. Um, Fleming Carpet Service, a local established carpet company for years, really, really from Fleming Carpet Service, went to Mullet Bay 
And in those days, it's like you go down and there'll be busloads of people come down looking for work. And it all depends which department needed somebody, you'll go. And if you don't know the trade, they will teach you. And if, you, if they, they will teach you, and if you're ambitious enough, they will even, might, Malibu might even send you to the States to get more courses on the profession. And that's where Fleming Capit Service, the knowledge, the job, and the business, the idea was born. And Fleming Capit Service has been providing carpets, the only one probably, for the last 20, 25 years, I would say. But really, cousin of mine went down to Mullet Bay on the regular bus with everybody looking for a job. That changed the landscape. When the economy started catching them, then the Haitians then came in in big numbers to do the job that basically nobody wanted to do. Then the Dominicans came in also. Okay, in the entertainment world and so. And there was a lot of people got a problem with the Dominicans, but the Dominicans, a lot of them who come back are descendants from the forefathers who went to Santo Domingo. And they're coming back now. And you know what they're coming back with? Grandfather's rights. So first of all, they come back. If they're on the French side, they can claim French nationality because their grandfather was French. And in the French system, Stephanie knows how this works. If you, if you can prove your father, your grandfather, two generations is French, bloodline, you get a French nationality. With the French nationality, you get the French car identity, you get the French card vital, you get the French everything. Okay? Um, not only in St. Martin, we see that developing in Angola where a lot of them going back to Anguilla and claiming their father, their grandfather's rights. St. Kitts the same thing. Nevis the same thing, okay? So that happened until the, the, the 70s, during the 70s. And well, it worked out. A lot of Haitians came, very ambitious, became very successful. I know stories of Haitian picking up Heineken bottles on the side of the road in French Quarter. And today, 25, 30 years later, Mr. Mann is a grand entrepreneur in real estate. Okay? So it all depends. You can make it here if you put your mind to it and you work hard. St. Martin, I wouldn't call it the United States. St. Martin is the, the opportunities have been there. If you want to work hard, you can work hard. But we still had a lot of social laws that a lot of people flock to St. Martin to be able to benefit from it. Trust me, our healthcare insurance systems on the Dutch side, the one on the French side is super, better, 10 times better than on the Dutch side. But if you look now, and I'm going a little in deeper waters, when you look, when you look at care, for instance, healthcare for individuals, for the masses, any American who understands it, okay, would tell you they wish they had ours because it's totally different in the United States than on the Dutch side. Our little as it as that way, we just criticize them and Julie so correctly. But the structure that is set up is 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 um, 
I mean, some people in the States will call it a total leftist and, and a socialist and all this nonsense and thing, but I think that's nonsense. I, I don't think we, we got any socialist system set of that, that, that's real, real socialist. But it attracts people. And then what happened now? How did the, the landscape change again? The landscape changed after you had the, the influx of the Haitians, the Dominicans, and then we had the remaining islands that came. The first islands that came here, even before the tourism boom started, was Anguilla and St. Kitts. Okay? People used to call things were bad in Anguilla in, in the 50s and the 60s. Really, really bad. I just tease my friends from Anguilla, they always they had a saying: when you go to Anguilla, they say, What you bring for me? And when they come to man, they say, What you got for me? Okay? But there's always been one, this, these islands here. Simbats nowadays is booming, rich. You, you can't go Simbats. I can't go Simbats to spend a, long, a week unless my friend Bruno Magra provide me with a room by his house or in the yard or somewhere. Because it's expensive. But Simbats went through its period of poverty. People from Simbats used to get on boats in the 30s, in the 50s, because nobody looked at them. Europe was in a war. Nobody worried with anybody around here. They had time. They had nothing. Europe was destroyed. But people from Simbas would tell you that they would get in sailing boats with a piece of bread or whatever, and there was no wind. They would drift. And where they would end up mostly is St. Thomas in the Virgin Islands. That's why if you go to St. Thomas, there's a section in St. Thomas called French Town. A chachatong, they call it. Pure people descendants from St. Bart that is residing there. Okay. So you used to call the people from St. Bart the chachas? Yeah, the chacha. Okay. The chacha. As a little boy, I remember in the 60s, when you hear they would announce from you know neighbor to neighbor, the chacha them coming Saturday. So if you when the chacha them coming. If you got a cow up in the hill that you want to sell to get some money, you will go up the day before, tie the cow down. The, the cow is a little worried because the, the cow we are accustomed to being tied. You get some friends, go up, tie it, and you come down because the cha man will come trade them. Okay? One with a bag, a leather bag over his shoulder, he got the money. Okay? And two with ropes. I, I seen this as a kid back in French Quarter. And two with ropes. And they always had on khaki clothes, khaki, short sleeve. The fellas then who handling the, who got the rope, they got short sleeve. And the fellow who got the bag with the money, he, he, like, a, he like a general, he got on a long sleeve khaki shirt. And they had these um, hats on. I think the, the, the British just use them, the white one, like the police, you know. They, you got them by, when you go by the Queen in London, they stand up there like they, you know, holy with this thing. And they would um, <laughs> they would come down French Quarter and find out who all got cows to sell. And they would buy the cows. And then they would tie them. And walk, if one is a bull up, they walk them. And then sometimes they walk them all the way to Marigot. Or they would get a cat or something. If somebody got a truck, tie the cow, put in the truck, take it, Marigot, take it, and buy some butcher for meat. We call them the chachas. Yeah. Well, it was, it's been a very hard time to try to figure out how to say we have 10 minutes oh, more. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but 
we, we don't want to cut the conversation short because this is all historical gold, but I wanted to see maybe also if anybody had like a, a specific question about what. Yeah. yeah, I'm sorry. I talked to so, <laughs> we, We're going to have to have you back, Marcel, because this yeah. is, uh, it was too short. <laughs> I, I had a specific question just in terms of, um, if you could just uh, give us some detail as to St. Martin's political maturity. So the process from, of course, you know, being in the Antilles and having diverse parties, because you know, as we know, um, the Democratic Party was basically the, the big machine in, in those days. And so what can you say about the growth of the island and, and having diver you know, diversity politically um, and yeah. having more structure? Yeah. Uh, the Democratic Party, um, you said was a big machine. The Democratic Party at one one time was a well-oiled machine. I don't know if it was big. It was well-oiled, oiled. But the Democratic Party also um, went through its dark days in the early 90s um, when the PDP broke away from the DP uh, under the leadership of Millicent and Leroy and them. That, 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 that weakened the Democratic Party. But even before then, the Democratic Party has had its ups and downs. Um, <clears throat> it's not about the size, it's about how, how well functional it is, uh, how well oiled it is. Um, I think that what has happened, um, we've had a, 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 a demise in in first of all, political stability and in political awareness. Um, and we've seen it in the Democratic Party. When you have a structure, when you have a system where, um, like in any organization, you have a, the Lions got a tail twister. They call it tail twister, the Lions Club. When you got a structure that somebody come in and they go through a process of getting to know what it's about, who you are about, how to do things, the, the 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 institution can grow and will grow and what is important what is important is the maturity the not, not the the i would say the mental um, um, maturity in people in in candidates to be able to withstand the forces the outside forces that does penetrate that that has tried and have succeeded in penetrating into political parties since 10-10-10, the outside forces. What I mean with that is people who stay on the outside and prey on weak persons that join political parties and bully them. There's been too much of bullying from outside forces on political establishment, political parties. And I'm talking about one. I talk about all. Well, maybe maybe exceptional one or two, but the the, the outside bullying, um, and I talk with that with 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 a big mouth because I've experienced it. I've experienced it. We will not talk about that now. We can talk about that another time. I have experienced that being being asked after I retired from politics in 2006 and being asked and begged to come back to help 
in 2014 as prime minister, and I've seen how it works. I know how it works. I've experienced it because I had, out of 15 members of parliament, I had the support of 10, 10. But because of bullying, bullying from outside forces and inside forces, I lost the majority in my coalition of 10. And I consider those who were weakling, they were weak and, um, and cowards. Cowards in the sense that if you're strong politically, if, you, if you're a man or you're a woman in anything you do, if you got a difference, face the person face to face and settle the matter. But don't wait until the person, in my case, 32,000 feet up in the air and go bring a motion on confidence against the government. And I hope, I hope that that bullying and I call on them and they're probably listening they got people listening. I call on them to stop it in the interest of the country. Stop the bullying and leave people that have put themselves up to serve this country in high positions, leave them do their work at peace and stop the bullying and for, for, for financial interests to be able to push this one and try to buy people. And everybody who's right now in the political arena who plan on coming in, okay, to get into politics is about serving. It's about serving the majority, the, pe the people, okay? And it works this way. When you serve and when you do what you were elected for, it's like spreading your bread over the water. You will meet it at the mouth of the river, your bread. But stop the bullying. And that's our pro that has been our problem. So we, we have lost that. We have lost that. But I have a, uh, I have a small question to add to that because yeah. you were the first, you're the first prime minister to to uh, use the constitution to dissolve parliament. Um, yeah. and so well, successfully. Wait, wait, wait. I, I did it. Successfully. I want to ask like what was your thinking in invoking this article? And how do you now see the way in which it's being utilized by coalitions to, as a tool against parliament as well? Well, uh, first of all, the, I was not the first to use it. <laughs> within Country St. Martin? No, no, no. It was used be, it, within Country St. Martin. It was used also. But they failed. They failed. Um, William Marlin, when he was prime minister, um, when he was deputy prime minister with Sarah, Oh, the Mexican standoff? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> but you see what happened? Um, he tried to use it there, and actually, um, <laughs> the, 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 the prime minister at that time had fooled everybody because when we became country in 2010, there was one, in, one body, one institution that was not implemented in 2010. It was only implemented in 2014. That was the uh, Electoral Council. So the Prime Minister, in my opinion, the Prime Minister, Rebecca Scott Williams, she, she threw a fastball and caught William Teo and all them off guard because she waited until the first quarter of 2014 <laughs> to institute the Electoral Council with uh, Linda Richardson and all them in it. 
So, but before that, there was no legal basis to keep election. But that's another conversation we'll have about the constitution and about experience and about whatever has to be done in government. But um, coming back to the crook of the matter, I would hope that um, the, 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 the forces, those negative forces that is only looking at their and their friends' interests um, outside of, 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 of the, the political arena, uh, please stop, stop bullying people around because it's not gonna work. I lost um, out of a coalition of 10, I lost um, a majority of 10, I lost three one shot, okay? And people voted to kick me out who six months before told me I was the best prime minister <laughs> ever. But because they were put under pressure by outside forces and money plays a role sometimes, um, this will happen. Um, where, how are we gonna continue next time? <laughs> next time we continue with a three hour cap probably. <laughs> with, some lunch, with some lunch breaks, John again, perhaps. <laughs> we, we got a good, I think, sense of some cultural history, and next time we get political history for the people. Well, we can do that. Sure, we can do that um, um, anytime. I hope I covered, um, there's so much to cover, especially when you're talking about this Dutch-French thing, but um, I hope that... Um, <laughs> For us, it's important for, or especially uh, for our generation that's listening and you know younger than us, to realize within oh, one lifetime how much the market has developed. Sorry, I forgot we are live. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, but um, to close off, um, with the landscape that um, Jonathan was talking about, it ha it has changed. Um, like I said before, it started in, in, in the late 60s. We started with the Haitians and the Dominicans that came to claim their grandfather's rights. And then we had the others. And the, now we've had um, the latest we got, the big move is the, um, the Jamaicans and the Guyanese that has um, come in massively and um, got very much involved in, um, in, 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 in the private sector. I mean, in, in business, the, 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 the Guyanese are playing a big, big role in that. Um, of course, we also got now the, the landscape is changing with the, with the Venezuelans, but that's another um, sad case. Uh, we can talk about that, but that's, that's a very complicated one. And that has me very, very worried um, as a citizen and somebody who's been in government and so, because um, Again, with the Venezuelans, there's a blame going on. Yeah, it's a French side, it's a Dutch side. They come in through the French side, then team through the Dutch side. The Venezuelan saga started by the coming in on Incel Air, okay? Incel Air sold over $100 million dollars of tickets that got stuck in Venezuela. They could never get the money out, and they claimed that for being their demise. But the Venezuelans started coming here on Incel, given an address on the Dutch side by the immigration, Nobody followed up to find out if they were really staying there. The next month, they go by the prefecture. They uh, apply for uh, refugee status. The French has to process their papers. It takes two, three months. In the meantime, they get a subsidy from the French government to pay for their housing or whatever they get. Thing. And then what they do, again, the open border that we all talk about is misused because what happened? They go get their little stipend and whatever from the French side, but they come over on the Dutch side and they work. 
and then they go back every week to check what is their status. And when they do get through their status, they get on a boat, on a plane, and they go on France, and they go to the south of France, close to the Venezuelan, to the Spanish border, where there's a lot of Spanish, where they feel at home. So these are the things that is happening, and, and we don't we don't pay attention to them. And and you know, I I have, we will have a special session on the border because I got my personal opinion about the border and I love the open border and um, but we're going to talk about that. So that scenario is changing continuously and um, the 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 um, how you say the, the the horizon or the, the picture of, of migrant it um, it changes yes because the some professionals don't like to admit it. I believe that we have some honey on the tables. And that anybody come, it's jobs, yes, opportunity for work, but there's also opportunity for the social laws that we got, okay? Mm. Um, because all the job loss after Irma, nobody left went home. With Corona, nobody ain't going, ain't going home neither. But the laws on the Dutch side and on the French side more, but the laws on the Dutch side, um, you know that you can come here on a Thursday, you get a job on Monday, and by the next Thursday, you got the SZB CAD. You don't have a, a immigration uh, residence, you don't have a work permit, but you got the SZB CAD. You got the law says that. And those are the type of laws, in my opinion, that needs to be repaired. You need re reparation, legal reparation, because you can't have it like that. There's gotta be something connected that you gotta you got get a work permit, a residence permit, register paying taxes, income tax, and so, and then you get a health insurance. You see, a few things we've, we've done ass backwards, and we got to straighten them out. But um, yeah, that's it, guys. So you've given us a little touch on what all you can still tell people about. So I hope people really enjoyed this session. I know that all of us did because yes. I know that this is something that we do, you know, we have. I have to say that, you know, having access to someone like you, uh, Marcel, is a luxury, you know, like you are a walking archive of information. And with the changing landscape of St. Martin, we have to, and also with the fact that, you know, our parents ourselves might not have had the luxury to grow up in St. Martin or to witness something. Yeah. So it's, it's a shame sometimes for all of us to recognize that you have to know someone to know about St. Martin history. You know, you can't, you can't just find it when yeah. when you want, but it's also a joy to be able to sit down and have these conversations and to be forced to step out of your environment, maybe to to get the information. But we just want to thank you for agreeing to be on the show and to be our first interview guest. Oh, I'm the first. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh. oh, thank you. You know, um, up until some time back, there used to be a little group. You know who they are, <laughs> Carla. Uh, they would invite me for, for breakfast on Saturdays, four hour breakfast and pick my brains. <laughs> and, um, but it's, I, I, I enjoy it. And, um, you know, Carla, you know, Keith and myself, uh, your stepdad is in the same boat. We, we just transfer knowledge. I mean, you know, whoever wants to hear, um, I, I'm always um, talking. I, I, I don't like to go, uh, when, when I go anywhere and, and my family's around and they give me a microphone, my wife does um, time me and said, you know, take the microphone from him after five minutes because he'll talk five hours. 
but um, it was a pleasure for me. Um, I really enjoyed it. Um, um, now I get the gist of what we're doing. I think the next one, what we can do is maybe um, get the points then before and um, prepare better and maybe have some uh, more, um, more in-depth information to share with you all. Thank you all very, very much. Um, how much people are following us? Uh, you guys got a count? I mean, I have no idea how that works. So about uh, 40 people tuned in. Oh, okay. And uh, they said that they really enjoyed the conversation. Some told you to write a book. They really <laughs> requested a book. And some requested uh, for us to uh, bring you back uh, for oh. another show. Oh, well, very nice. The book, the book is in planning. The book is in planning, but planning is taking too long. <laughs> really. 2017, Marcel has been telling me that he's going to write a book. And that oh was, my god! This was the year to write. We were all in quarantine. You had the time, Marcel. If, 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 <laughs> you know what? If you need some consultancy, I can help you with that. So. <laughs> I, I have some experience. Thanks, Ralph. <laughs> you know, but you know what? I did a lot in um, in lockdown, there, Carla. I did a lot of thinking. Really, um, you That's know, the first step to sort everything out. Thinking and uh, and 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 looking, you know, and and um, you know, just just to get a, a little bit of the iceberg. Uh, I'm I was I, I was hoping, and, and I spoke to some people that you know after the pandemic, if we're going to open, um, we got to do things different, but um, not necessarily, not necessarily just wearing the mask and everything. But I I always feel. And that's my personal opinion, and, and I was discussing it. You know what we lack? We lack, we lack, we are lacking civility. We are lacking um, decency. We are lacking those lot of C's amongst ourselves and amongst our leaders. We, 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 uh, we, we are talking, we are talking to each other in the political arena and on the radio, on the media, like um, like we're some um, um, fifth world country, you know what I mean? And we, we can do better than that. We can do much better than that. And I think in general, in the island, I think there should be a, a, a summit. Maybe if government don't want to do it, if the private sector don't want to do it, because the private sector blames, you know, it becomes a finger pointing. Somewhere we got to um, stop for a moment and um, um, take inventory of the product, the product called St. Martin, and see and be honest and see how we could um, how we could um, improve the product. The diamond that we have has gotten dirty. The diamond needs to be the diamond needs to be uh, cut, uh, polished. Um, and brought back. Um, we need to be honest with ourselves and look at what is, is, is um, what is our problems in this society. We need to spend attention and find solutions for our traffic jams, uh, our environment. We got to spend more time on that, more issues on that, you know, those things. And the whole product for the tourism, um, St. Martin, we need to stop for a moment and reevaluate it and improve it. We we cannot have we cannot have um, bringing tourists to go see planes land at the airport and then when it's time for them to come back, the bus got to call a, a police to clear the traffic to bring 
a speeding bus of tourists through the hill up Colby Hill to reach in time to go on the cruise ship. So the real problems that bother in this country, we need to start tackling them seriously. Thank you all very much. Thank you too, much appreciated. Yes, thank you so much. Let me know when you guys are ready next time and let's sit on maybe a day before and just go through some points so I'll be better prepared. No problem. Sounds <laughs> good. So Bye. thank you for listening and I hope that you tune in for episode eight. We have something planned for you next week as well. So Mela is bringing you a lot of content and hopefully you enjoy it. Hopefully you can take away a lot and comment anything below. We'll answer you and try to get back to you. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Melly. Have some comments? You can write to us at mellysxm at gmail.com or on Facebook and Instagram at mellysxm. See you for our next episode of Melly, and in the meantime, stay curious. <laughs>